Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. My feet and a light for my path. We pray that as we begin this new week, your light would continue to shine on our paths. That today we might open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds to your holy word. That your Holy Spirit might work in us to strengthen our faith, to equip us for life, to send us out into the world with good news. So we pray your blessings upon us today as we study your word. We come in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Lessons that we're going to be looking for, looking at today or for next Sunday, as is our custom here. The lessons begin with the Old Testament lesson, Proverbs chapter 25, verses 2 through 10. This is an interesting place to start because notice we begin with verse 2. Well, why didn't we start with verse 1? Verse 1 is kind of a set of rubrics. It tells us about this passage and, and where it's coming from. It begins, these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So what's happening here is a, another collection of, of Solomon's Proverbs. Now Solomon, according to 1 Kings chapter 4, spoke 3,000 Proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs. These must have all been collected into some kind of an archive to be preserved and passed on through the years. And so you begin the book of Proverbs with the first 28 chapters, and those are just some of the Proverbs that um, Solomon spoke. But now in chapter 9, what it's saying is, here's another collection of Solomon's words. These were copied by the men of Hezekiah. Hezekiah actually reigned 200 years after Solomon had died. And so it's kind of a way of paying tribute to the history of the past. Here's another group of Solomon's sayings. And this section begins with instructions for kings and princes. And so it would, be, would have been very beneficial for Hezekiah, good King Hezekiah, to have these recorded and put together for him as he govern his people. The, the section, as I said, begins with uh, instructions for the king. And it's talking about those who had political authority and were to govern God's people according to God's word. And there's all kinds of modern applications that we could make just to these introductory words. What is the duty of the king? What is the responsibility of government? That's an important question for us in our time. As we talk about government and our leaders and what is the duty of a citizen in our times. Romans chapter 13 tells us the role of the government. The role of the government is to punish those who do wrong and to protect those who do right. The role of the government, according to Martin Luther, was to force people to do good and to live righteous lives. To force them to do that, even if they didn't live righteous lives. And so you see this, this whole idea of the government having an influence on society for good, for protection and for punishment of those evildoers. So how do we apply those words in our time? What is our responsibility toward government in this postmodern culture that you and I live in? 
there is a disregard for all authority in our, our society today. Not just government, but all the institutions on which our society has stood are now suspect and disregarded and disrespected. We remember the words of the fourth commandment. Honor your father and mother, and Martin Luther always applied that beyond just the scope of the family to all in positions of authority. And he said we are to fear and love God so that we do not despise our parents and masters, but give them honor, serve and obey them, and hold them in love and esteem. What does that look like for us as citizens today? in a government that we may or may not agree with, in a culture that is changed and, and values and things that we always held dear, things that we called right are now called wrong, things that we call good they call evil. How are we to live and what does it mean to give honor, serve and obey, hold them in love and esteem? We, we as Christians today struggle with that. But um, we, we need to keep the principle in mind that God has established all authority. And all authority is intended for our good. And therefore we owe them our respect and our honor and our obedience until that point where they cross the line. And they're no longer being obedient to God, no longer governing according to God's will for the good of people. And then we must obey God rather than men. Well, let's look at, beginning in, in verse 2, some of these proverbs about instruction for kings. Verse 2 begins, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. God's glory is to conceal things. We like to think of God as revealing things to us. God has given us his word. His word is to make us wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. His word has practical instructions for our everyday life. God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself at the cross and in the death of his son. Has God revealed everything to us? Oh, no. As human beings, there are all kinds of things we'd like to know. How many times have you heard people say, well, God, that isn't fair, when they really don't understand God's thinking? We ask the question, why? Because we, we want to know what God is thinking and doing. But Solomon said, it is God's glory to conceal things. There are certain things that are not for us to know. And maybe we're better off not knowing them. So it's the king's glory to conceal things. But the king's glory is to investigate those things. The will of, of God is, is revealed in his word. And so the duty of a king, the, the duty of those in authority, the the duty of those in, in leadership is to always be searching God's word and then governing according to that word. Verse 3, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. 
Apparently there are certain things, according to this word, that kings need to conceal. There are state secrets that aren't necessarily our responsibility to know. Doesn't that cause issues for us today? Why do we watch Fox News or why do we watch CNN? Because we want to know what's going on behind the scenes. We think we're entitled to know everything that's going on. And here Solomon, the wise man who had been involved in leadership for a long time says, no, it's the king's will. The king's will is unsearchable goes on verse 4 and 5 take away the dross from the silver and the smith has material for a vessel take away the wicked from the presence of the king and the throne will be established in righteousness kings need to rid themselves of all sinful behavior they need to get rid of all of the dross all of the impurities all of the the corrupt aids in in their cabinets and, and those who are advising them. Scandals and misconduct destroy leadership. Puts a, a question all over all of their plans. How can we trust the king if, if it's been revealed, if, if we know certain things about the king? How, how, can, how can we as the people of God trust what's going on if we can't trust our ruler? So he says all of the kings, all of those in authority have to get rid of all the dross so that what they do and what they say is pure. Verse 6, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of great. For it is better to be told come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. To have an audience with the king was one of the greatest honors of any citizen. But he's saying, don't exalt yourself more highly than you ought. You don't go into the presence of a king thinking you really are something when you're really not. Call it pride. Call it hebrus. It can lead to humiliation. And humiliation, on the other hand, can lead to elevation. And we'll see that after a while in the gospel that we read from Luke chapter 14. Jesus said the same thing about when you go to, to the banquet. While Solomon here, I don't believe, was directly talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, certainly the principle is, is that which we hear in, in Philippians chapter 2 where it points us to Jesus, who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He took the lowliest place of all. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And what did his father do? Therefore, he is exalted to the highest place, sits at the right hand of the father in all glory and majesty rules over all things for the sake of his church. There is an image for God's people. What does it mean to live in this culture? Are we always putting ourselves forward, always exalting ourselves? 
Or do we take the lowest place? The place of a lowly servant, even a slave. And then wait for our master to exalt us and recognize us. The rest of verse 7 says, What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will, what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Practical application today would say, don't be so litigious. Don't be too quick to take your neighbor into court. You might lose your case, and if you lose your case, you'd be humiliated. There's a better way to live your life. He says, argue your case with your neighbor himself. Do not reveal another's secret, lest he hears you and brings shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. Settle manners in a personal way rather than taking everyone to court. And Jesus taught the very same thing. In, in one of the, the most important passages of Scripture in my way of thinking for how we conduct our lives in this world, Jesus laid it out in Matthew 18. If someone wrongs you, what should you do? Do you go out into public and destroy that man's reputation? You know, we have only one commandment about bearing false witness. The eighth commandment says we shouldn't belie, betray, slander, defame, but defend our neighbor, speak well of our neighbor, put the best construction on everything. God has given us one whole commandment about our reputations. And you know, if someone is out to destroy your reputation, there is nothing that you can do to defend yourself. If you stand and vocally blast that person for destroy or attempting to destroy your reputation, what are people going to think? Oh, there must be something to it. Look at, look at how much he protests. If you stand there and you take it all and you don't say anything, what are people going to think? Well, he's not denying it. There must be something to it. So if someone is out to destroy your reputation, there is nothing you can do to protect yourself. Your reputation is always vulnerable. So God gave us this commandment. Jesus says, instead of destroying somebody's reputation, the first thing you do if somebody wrongs you, you go and talk to that person one-on-one. -on -one. With the understanding that if he listens to you, you'll win your brother over. And that's really the goal, winning the brother over. If he fails to listen to you, what are you to do? Go out and blast it in public? No, you take one or two others along with you. You talk one-on-one -on -one and you seek to resolve the situation there. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he refuses to listen to the two or three of you, then you tell it to the church. And the church goes to work on that person hoping to regain the brother. And it's only after he's failed to listen to the church that you, you begin to treat him like a tax collector or a sinner. And how are we supposed to treat tax collectors and sinners? 
as potential brothers and sisters, right? It's always a, the goal is always to make peace, to win your brother over, that there might be true reconciliation among God's people. And that's what Solomon is getting at here. Don't be too quick to go into court. Because in the process, you might lose and your reputation will be destroyed. But you go and you talk one-on-one. -on -one, and you seek to win your brother over. One of the, the applications that, that just bugs me so much right now that i got to lay it out there. I love the internet, but here is one practical application for how we use the internet. There are so many abuses of the Eighth Commandment, so many people's reputations are being destroyed because of things that are put on the internet. Maybe the best application of this passage is, hey, pay attention to how you're posting things on the internet and don't be too quick to do so. Because you don't know the damage that can be done when you put that stuff out there. And when you do, there's no opportunity to take it back. Very practical application. The words of the wise Solomon don't be out there posting all the time. The whole goal of this passage is the king's responsibility is to seek reconciliation. There needs to be forgiveness so that the ultimate result is peace between you and your neighbor. This is the king's responsibility. Any thoughts about this passage from Proverbs? Seems like loose connections of all kinds of things, but the real point here is, here's the duty of the king. Here is the role of the government in society today to protect reputations, um, to pr protect people in general, and um, be careful how you recognize government. Any thoughts about that? Then we go to Hebrews. And for the last few weeks, our sermons have all been focusing on the book of Hebrews. We're up to the 13th chapter. And in many of our Bibles, this section is entitled, Sacrifices Pleasing to God. For the last few weeks, as we noted, we, we talked about what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. We've looked at how faith has impacted the lives of all kinds of Old Testament saints. And we saw that in chapters 11, there are 18 times when it says, by faith, this person did this. And it points to all of the heroes of the Old Testament from um, the time of, of Cain and Abel up until the people of God were settled in the Promised Land and how faith impacted the journey all the way. Now in chapter 13, it's, it's the practical application. Some people believe that the book of Hebrews was really one long sermon. And now he's coming to the practical application. And it, it, again, it almost looks like boom, 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 all kinds of different topics. And maybe he is, but, but what he's saying here is, here is how faith really operates in the life of a Christian congregation and in the lives of people. He begins, let brotherly love continue. You've heard of the, the, 
the, the kind of love called philia, the brotherly kind of love. We get the word philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Well, there are three words in these first five verses that use that root word, philia. Let brotherly love continue. Now, obviously, they had been doing it if, if he's saying let it continue. The problem here is that while they, they had been a loving congregation, they were under persecution. And in the time of persecution, people have a tendency to pull back in order to protect themselves. And so they're not as outgoing, as loving as they could have been. They become suspect of one another. They, they no longer reach out to help one another. They don't know who their friends are and who their enemies might be and who might turn them in. And so the real danger here is that brothers and sisters, especially in the time of persecution, or especially in times like our own, when, when we're, not, we're not undergoing the same kind of perse persecution they are, but when we're a minority, we need to be reaching out to one another, supporting and encouraging one another. It's, it's tough to live in this world as individual Christians. We're going to be picked off, but... Let our brotherly, sisterly love be genuine because now is a time when it's needed more than ever. Remember, Jesus gave his church a new commandment on the, the night before he died that we should love one another as he loved us. This, this mark of Christian love was, was always the mark which identified and set the Christians apart from one another. There was a, a secular commentator who, who looked at what was going on in the days of the early church, and his comment was, see how much they love one another. That's what set Christians apart from the rest of the world. You know, if people would look at the church today, I wonder, would they say, well, see how much those Christians love one another? I really wonder. Now, sometimes I fear that they look at the church and say, See how much they fight one another? See how often they bring charges against one another? See how they separate themselves from one another? Why would I want to be a part of the church if that's the way the church treats one another? And so in the practical part of this sermon, he is saying to these people who were persecuted, persecuted and, and tending to shy away from one another, let that love of Lord Jesus be genuine. Let it continue in the way that you treat one another. He goes on to say, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Hospitality. It, it's a, a love of the stranger. It was critical in times of persecution. Because if a, a new person came into town, a stranger came, and you didn't know that person, you didn't know whether you could trust that person or not, even though they were passing themselves off as Christians, it was a dangerous thing to welcome those people into your home. But here he's saying... Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 
neighboring is another way of talking about hospitality. This week, Lutheran Hour Ministries came out with a, a headline, an article about a new study from the Barna Institute, which says that only 40% of Christians today ever welcome anybody into their house. Whether you're talking about a neighbor, a friend, we don't welcome anybody into our homes. You remember how life used to be? I mean, I, I grew up in North St. Louis in, a, in, the, in Woodson Terrace, a, a suburb. And it was every night, every night during the summer months, there was a large circle of neighbors who just sat around on the lawn and they talked. And the kids played and ran crazy, but all of the adults were sitting in a circle talking all evening long, neighboring. And if somebody needed something, the whole neighborhood would pitch in and do it. Everybody was involved in one another's life. It also went pretty far in terms of disciplining. If we were in a neighbor's house and got in trouble, we got swatted and sent home. Everybody was, was mom and dad to the whole group. That's the kind of life that Hebrews is describing here. Let hospitality be genuine and, and let it continue among you. That's the way the church needs to treat one another. But hospitality is one of those gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some people have that gift of hospitality, some people don't, but all of us can, can be about this work of neighboring, helping people feel welcome. And then there's this unique common, uh, comment that, that Hebrews makes. Some people have entertained angels unaware doing this simple work of neighboring. You go back to the book of Genesis and how there were times when strangers came to the Abraham's house, or when Abraham and Lot were in Sodom and Gomorrah, there were strangers there, and they were angels who would come to warn them. I don't think you need to look at your neighbors and say, is that an angel? Um, probably not, but, but how do you know? If, if you're not welcoming strangers into your midst and, and including them in what's going on, and what a wonderful opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. In that case, you know, you might just be the angel. There's a whole new view of evangelism that I, I think is critical today. It, it, it used to be um, that, that we were trained to go out and knock on doors. And the basic question was, if you were to die tonight, were you certain that you'd go to heaven? And if you were to die tonight and, and God would say to you, why should I let you into heaven? And, and you'd wait for the people to respond about how they, were good, they had done so many good works. And then you'd have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus and all he's done for them. People don't welcome you into their homes anymore. You can bang on doors all you want and they've got the doorbell now that can, can show them who's there. And they're not going to let you in. How do you get the opportunity to tell people about Jesus? By being a good neighbor. You know, and in those, those unique opportunities where, where you're out on the lawn and you're, you're talking over the fence and you hear about the problems in this person's life and you have the opening there to talk to them about Jesus. 
You might just be the angel, the messenger who brings good news by simply showing hospitality and loving your neighbor. There are others who are hurting, those in prison and those mistreated. Now, this isn't just showing hospitality to all criminals. That's not what he's getting at here. He's talking about those who are in prison and those who are mistreated because of the persecution. Hebrews had been responding this way for some time, and now he's saying continue to do that. I talked to a student from Concordia Seminary this past week. He and I had a, a session Friday afternoon, and I asked him what he was going to do the rest of the day. He was going down to the prison, St. Louis Jail, and he was con going to conduct a Bible study. And I said, well, how are you received when, when you go into to the jails? Do, do these guys come in as con men and try to work you over as far as, as getting time off from their other jobs, or are they really into God's word? He said, you know, there are some prisoners in the, in the, the city jail who, who know the scriptures better than I do. And they truly do come. Some who have lost their way and, and remember what they were taught when they were children. And now they're coming back because they know they've made a mess of their lives. Got to tell you a story. Sidetrack. I have permission. This man has given me permission to tell this story. In, in my congregation years ago, there was a man named Doug. His wife was uh, chairman of, of, the of the congregation's education ministry. His two kids were in my confirmation classes over the year, but Doug never came to church. So one Friday, I was out and about, and I got a phone call. It was Doug, and he said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. Can you come over to the house? So I went over to, to meet with Doug, and I had no idea what he wanted to talk. I had no idea who Doug was, really. But he explained to me that he was a drug dealer working in a meatpacking plant in Sioux City. And there had been a long-term investigation, and he was about to go to prison. He wanted to know that Jesus was there for him, that forgiveness could be his. And so I, I had been doing a, my own private devotions that day, and I, I remember it, it was about a kaleidoscope. The passage was uh, from Romans about how in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And how God can take all the broken pieces of our lives and put them somehow together into a beautiful thing. I said, Doug, you look into a kaleidoscope, and if, if you look at the bottom of it, there are all these broken shards of glass, little pieces of mirror. It's a worthless pile of junk that's in the bottom of a kaleidoscope. But when you look at it through the kaleidoscope, what is it that you see? This beautiful pattern that changes, and it, it, it just keeps becoming more and more beautiful. I said, Doug, I don't know what God has in store for you, but remember this kaleidoscope that... God has a plan to work all of this together for your good. And so in time, I, I went with Doug when he turned himself in. I went with Doug when he went to trial. I went with Doug when, when uh, he finally went away to prison. And in prison, he got into the study of God's word. 
And his faith grew and grew and grew. And because of a, a special program that was going on, they looked at Doug's life in prison and his study of God's word and the changes that had come over him. And he was left out of prison much, much earlier than anticipated. And so there was a, a Sunday morning. Um, it was like All Saints Day. And I was preaching a sermon and I was trying to make a point that we are all saints because we are all forgiven in the blood of Jesus. And so I'm, I'm joking, saying, and that makes me St. Paul, right? And you're St. Betty and St. John. And I looked in the back of the church, and there's Doug. And without, without making a point, I just said, and St. Douglas and St. Bill and St. Bob. Well, people noticed that Douglas was there, and they, they didn't know really who Doug was or much about Doug. But they knew Rhonda. And so when the service was over, I look over and there's this crowd of people around Doug. The church was reaching out, showing hospitality to someone who had been in prison and welcoming him back in. And so a few months later, the congregation needed a new custodian. And of course, as a, an ex-con, Doug was having trouble finding a job. The congregation said, Doug, you're our guy. You're the new custodian of our church. They gave him the keys to everything. So shortly after that, I left that call and, and moved to another town. And I had heard that Doug was doing some work among teenagers, talking about the, the dangers of drugs and how it had messed up his life and his time in prison. And on Monday morning, I walked into the office, and sitting on my desk was a kaleidoscope. And a note from Doug thanking me for what he had done. I still have that kaleidoscope. It's one of my prized possessions to remind me how God can work even in the midst of prison to change somebody's lives so completely and make this beautiful pattern out of what had been broken shards of this man's life. Hebrews is saying the same thing. There are those who are mistreated. There are those who are in prison. And we as Christians have a responsibility to them. We remember the words of our Lord Jesus who said, If you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And we know it's hard to do that today. It's hard to help out those who are mistreated and those who are in prison and those who are hurting because of all the restrictions that are around us. But I believe that we as Christians today have an opportunity through our simple little acts of, of care to make a difference in people's lives and to share with them the good news of Jesus. Let's read on. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Hebrews would confirm that marriage and sexuality are a precious gift from God, and as such they should be honored and treated with respect. And so here he takes on fornication and adultery. When immorality is glorified, all of society suffers, and that's kind of where we are today. Isn't it interesting again that God gave us a commandment to protect this wonderful gift of sex? And his institution of marriage. And, and we, we have forgotten that in our society today it's become, 
The sixth commandment says that we are to fear and love God, that we may lead chaste and decent lives in word and deed, and each should love and honor his spouse. And that's a commandment that's often forgotten in the movies, in the books, in the music. Again, the internet comes into play. What about pornography? We in the church don't often talk about pornography. But as part of the, the orientation of new seminary students, one of the professors, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, I believe, goes into great detail about pornography the dangers that are involved for future pastors because it's a temptation to them just like everyone else. It used to be that you had to go down to the dirty bookstore and buy a dirty book in order to see pornography. And now all you, all, all you have to do is turn on your computer. This, this professor was saying that close to 100% of all children under the age of 15 have seen pornography because it pops up unexpectedly on their computers. It's always there, available to anyone at any time. And it's not just men. Women are involved in pornography as well. So why did God give us a commandment about leading chaste and decent lives in words and deeds and on our computer screens? Because he wants to bless marriages. He wants to protect that wonderful gift. And so, here again, what, is it, what does faith look like? Talks about how it impacts our marriage and our sexuality. The next section, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We could go into great detail about the seventh commandment, the ninth commandment, the tenth commandment, all about the things that we have and our attitudes towards the things that we have and the things that our neighbors have. But here he's talking specifically about the congregation's attitude toward money. So we, we hear these words, be free from the love of money. We hear the words of St. Paul to, the, to 1 Timothy 6 where he says, the love of money is the root of all evil. How seriously do we in the modern culture, postmodern culture, take those words? Money seems to be the goal. Amassing large amounts of money, saving for retirement, making sure that you'll be taken care of all the days of your life. Those become the most important things. And, and what happens? You know, when, when we start focusing all of our attention on money and our possessions, we turn them into an idol. We begin to worship all of those things rather than the God who gave them to us. And the bottom line here really is, is about who are we going to trust? God has promised he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And if we truly believed that God will provide for us all that we need we prayed every day, give us this day our daily bread, and waited for God to do it. How would our lives change in this postmodern culture we live in today? And so part of the sermon has to do with our love for money. And what does faith have to 
to, to do with the love of money. And the real key here is learning to be content. St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret of contentment. Have you learned that secret of contentment yet? You want to know the secret of contentment? Of really being content? Being content, you know, isn't having enough, but it's the attitude toward what we have. Being satisfied with what God provides us. You know the secret of contentment? Christ in you, the hope of glory, he says. Christ in you, the hope of glory, leads to contentment with what God provides you each day of your life. And so he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Then verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Remember that these Jewish Christians were, were in this state of persecution. And in those times, some were tempted to deny their faith. Some were tempted to go back to their old way of life. And along the way, they needed encouragement. And where could they get that encouragement? Well, start off by remembering your leaders, your spiritual leaders. Remember those who taught you the faith. Remember those who preached and taught the word of God to you week after week. Keep imitating their way of life. Ah, but then he goes on, maybe sometimes they failed you. And while we can't always depend on human spiritual leaders, remember Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Though human leaders fail us, Jesus never will. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is one of my favorite passages, and it's one of the most embarrassing. Years ago, um, I would get invited often to speak at congregation anniversaries. And every congregation would pick a theme for their anniversary, and often the theme for the anniversary was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so they'd look at their history, they'd look at their present congregation, they'd look at the future, and there was the outline for their celebration. So one summer I was, pre I was called to, to preach at, at a congregation, and that was the text, so I wrote a sermon for that text. The next Sunday, a congregation 175 miles away had a anniversary celebration and invited me to preach. And the text was, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, it was a busy week, and I said, I got the sermon. I preached it last week. I'll, the names will change to protect the innocent, but I'll preach the same basic sermon. So I'm in the midst of my sermon, Sue is sitting in the, in the pews listening, and there were some ladies near her who said, didn't we just hear this sermon last week? <laughs> <laughs> you 
They had been at the other celebration, and now they were at this one. And, and all I can think of at, at, when I remember that story is, yeah, Jesus Christ is the same. The message is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, it's always the same. And, and while we may be failed by spiritual leaders who, who have moral lapses or whatever, the point is, Jesus is the same always. Then he says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Remember the whole dietary laws of the people of the Old Testament? And, and these people had been into that dietary thing. As we'll see in the next section, they had been into the altars and the high priests and the sacrifices. And that was what they depended upon for their salvation. And he's saying to them... Don't depend on any of those kinds of things, but be strengthened by God's grace alone. Quickly, let's go on to the, the, the rest of it. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are buried outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruits of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The Jewish Christians who had depended upon that old structure and who had depended upon their sacrifices as the means of making themselves right with God, he's saying, no, you don't need that anymore. I understand that it's real. I, I understand that when you take your animal to the altar and you put it down and it's butchered and you see the blood and... That forgiveness becomes very real. But you don't need that. We've got Jesus who offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all. And so what becomes of our sacrifices? We can't offer sacrifices for our sins. They're all forgiven. What kind of sacrifices can we offer? Sacrifices of praise. Sacrifices of good work. Those are, are what we can offer up to God for all that he's done for us, not to make ourselves right with him, but as our response to the grace that he's shown to us. Hebrews goes on with lots and lots of more stuff, but you see how he's, he's taking how faith works and he's applying it to marriage and government and, and money and how we treat one another and our worship life. Faith impacts all of it. Any thoughts about Hebrews. Then let's look at Luke 14, the gospel, a familiar passage. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. He was invited to a Sabbath meal by a man who is described as a ruler of the Pharisees. This would have been a high-ranking official, probably one of the Sanhedrin, who would ultimately make the decision to put Jesus to death. So why would this man think of inviting Jesus to come to Passover meal at his house? 
was to keep an eye on him. He wanted to get into some kind of a theological discussion here as a way of disgracing Jesus and finding a reason to put him to death. The motives here are not pure motives. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Anybody remember what dropsy is? I remember people talking about it years ago. Today we call it edema. It's swelling. All right? So um, in, in Old Testament book of Leviticus, this swelling or bumps on the skin would have made a person spiritually unclean. Now, if this guy was so hung up on the law, what was he doing inviting a man with edema into his house? He was going to make a test case out of this. This Again, it's not pure motives. This man didn't belong there. He was spiritually unclean. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Well, you want to get into a theological guys argument, guys? Let's go. Is it lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath or isn't it? There were two different schools of thought. And so Jesus was already dividing and conquering them. They didn't answer the question. And you show, show the hypocrisy and the inconsistency. Then he took them and healed him and sent him away. So before... Before the healing, there had to be a theological discussion. You want to talk theology, okay, but, but what's really important here? What's really important is a man who's hurting. He said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't reply to these things. So he holds out this extreme case. Which, which one of you sitting here, if your son got in trouble, if he was drowning, or even if you had an, just an ox, remember an ox was a, a beast of burden, it was, it was their semis in those days, this was the means of transportation, it was their, their tractors for their farms, ox was pretty important. So if your son falls in a well, if an ox falls in the well, would you let him drown? And now these legal experts, what could they say? Uh, yeah, we'll let them drown. That wouldn't be a very good answer. No, we'll jump right in and help the guy. Well, that wouldn't be a very good answer because he'd be working on the Sabbath day. So once again, they couldn't say a word. Jesus shut them down. You want to argue theology? You want to talk about the law? Let's talk about how it fits into practical lives every day. And you don't let a son, and you don't let your ox drown. That's not the will of God. But because they were so hung up on the theology, they were so hung up on the law here, they couldn't give an answer. So Jesus told them three parables. He told a parable to those who were invited. This first parable is about the invitees. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to that person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, 
so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You think this is really just about etiquette or good manners at a dining table? Or do you think Jesus may have had more in mind as he says this? And it just makes sense. You know, the, the most important guests are put in the, the places of prominence in the first and second table, the front row. And those who are lesser guests take places somewhere farther behind. That's just the way things are. Even in our day, it's that way. And so you can imagine somebody going in, thinking pretty highly of himself, going up to a place, a, a rank where he really didn't belong, and plopping himself down. And everybody seeing him plop down there in the front row. And then someone more important than him comes. And the guests, the host comes and says, friend, give up your place. Go to the back of the bus. Take Bob Euchre's seat, the, the good seats in the back of the stadium, and now someone else is put in that place. Then you'll be ashamed. And shame is, is an important part of biblical culture. Shame is still an important part of many cultures today. Last fall, Concordia Seminary had a whole um, symposium on the topic of shame and honor and how it applies to lives of Christians, particularly in all other cultures around the world. We sometimes look at Asian people and say, why are they so polite? Why do they keep their heads down? Why do they bow? Why do they do these things? It's all about showing honor and preventing yourself from being shamed. And when they read a, an account of, of Scripture, they, they view it in terms of shame and honor. You know, for example, what... What was the issue at the, the uh, changing water into wine? Here was a young couple who, who threw a wedding feast, and it was their honor to do so. But what would have happened when they ran out of wine? They would have been ashamed. And they would never have been able to live that down. People would always remind them, you didn't take care of business. And so what did Jesus do in that situation? He changed water into wine. That wasn't the most important thing. He provided for that couple so that they weren't ashamed. So Jesus is talking about here about, you know, take that high place and you might be shamed and end up in the back. Don't let that happen to you. Take that lower place. Is that just about eating when you're invited to a banquet? Or does it say something about the kingdom of God and where we take our place in the kingdom of God? Now, we like to think we belong up front, closest to God, because we are the, we are the most righteous. We belong there. We've earned our position. But all we need to do is look at Jesus. Again, he humbled himself, and he was exalted to the highest place. As those who follow Jesus, where do we belong? We, we humble ourselves. We, we, don't, we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We 
We take that lowly place and let him exalt us if there is any exalting to do. Very quickly, then, we'll go through the, the next parable, and it's, it's to the, the host. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So now the words are directed to the host. And it's talking about his hospitality. And he says, don't invite four kinds of people. Friends, brothers, relatives, and neighbors. Why not? Because they can repay you. It's not about being repaid. It's about generosity. It's about hospitality. Instead, invite those who are outcasts, like the man who had edema who was, was sitting there earlier. Invite those who are poor and, and lame and blind and the beggars. Show them generosity, and they can't repay you. And in the end, you'll be richly blessed. I'll let the pastors uh, talk more about this, but, but here the whole, whole thing, the whole point of these parables is is there's going to be this great reversal. When the kingdom of God finally comes, the last will be first. The poor will be rich. The unclean will become clean. The humble will be exalted. The servant will be the first in the kingdom at the feast which is to come. In the name of Jesus, amen. Shall we pray once again? Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the precious gift of faith, the faith which has worked in us through your word. And we pray that, that you would help us to live by faith, that we might be your people in the world today, that we might conduct ourselves in, in a manner which is pleasing to you, that we might love our neighbors as ourselves we pray, gracious God, that in this week that lies before us, we might let our faith shine in all that we do and all that we say, that we might tell the world good news about Jesus and his kingdom. For we pray in his name, amen. Go in peace. KFUO, a click away, 24 hours a day. Originating from the studios of KFUO Clayton, St. Louis, the messenger of good news.